Hey everyone, this is Jeff Shulman, and before we begin today's episode, I just want to give a call out to all of you aspiring product managers who are committed to a more inclusive future. If you've been putting in the work, you've been studying product management, interviewing for roles, and just haven't been able to land the job, the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator might be for you. Check it out. The link for the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator is in the description of this episode. And we are so grateful for our sponsors, T-Mobile and Starbucks, who enable the University of Washington to offer this program free. This 12-week program is online. Applications open June 8th. Thank you to T-Mobile and Starbucks for sponsoring this. And to all of you aspiring product managers, set your calendar and check it out. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And every week we are bringing you some of the best and brightest in product management because we want to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And part of that is just making the knowledge more readily available, breaking the code for you. And today we have a guest, and I don't want to mispronounce it, so I'm just going to let you pronounce your name and tell us a little bit about your journey in product. Awesome. Yeah, great to be here. My full name is Avi Noam. There's a few folks online which I know, so most people call me Avi, so that also works. And yeah, I've been in product management for since around 2009, 10, something like that. Multiple companies, I think around five or six companies, different sizes from like founding PM at a startup to smaller companies, medium to larger sizes like Atlassian and LinkedIn. And yeah, I've had the privilege to work on things like e-commerce platforms, uh, enterprise analytics, live chat productivity, and most recently, social networking uh, at LinkedIn. And my path to product management has been non-traditional and a bit of a mistake. No real um, goal to become a product manager earlier on. Just kind of got a job in tech and kind of made my way into it from success management. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. All right. Welcome. Thanks for being here. And today we're going to talk about emotional product management. That is kind of a Interesting title. Maybe maybe we could have done better. But Sumeya, tell us a little bit about why it's important to kind of think about the emotions, building your EQ, and truly understanding and empathizing with the emotions of the people around you. Yeah, motivate this topic, Sumeya. Yeah, absolutely. Emotional quotient uh, or EQ is something that comes up a lot for uh, PMs who have to influence and have to inspire and do all that soft, squishy stuff in addition to delivering outcomes that are hard and meaningful. So having this discussion about the emotional side of product management, I think is very important at all levels of it, whether you are starting as a PM or you are experienced. A lot of times your influence, your circle of influence only grows and the skills you have to show show up with, you know, increasing complexity as well. And I don't want to get all emotional, but this is the first week that the band is all together, Sumeya and Red, and uh, we're back after a, a bit of a, a hiatus. Uh, we've had one, but not the other, and I'm getting emotional. Red? Well, first of all, if you want to get involved and you're not here today, that means you're listening as a podcaster, I want you to stand up, 
and do a jumping jack and just say to yourself, PMs rock. That's it, Jeff. That is that is the best I could do for a podcast listener. For those of you who are actually live here today, which there are quite a number of you, fantastic. You have an opportunity in about 15 to 20 minutes to actually get up on stage and ask a question to Avi Noam, to Sumeya, and to learn from PMs. If you are shy and you do not want to get on stage, that's cool too. You can DM myself or Jeff throughout the show and we will ask questions without revealing your identity. If you want to give us a secret identity or a superhero identity, that's cool too. But whatever the case may be, you get an opportunity to ask questions because this show is for you. So listen in at the first half, four most awesome questions, and know that we will open up the stage for you in just a few. Back to you, Jeff. All right, Red. You know, it's I have to small tangent. It's funny. We had the Inclusive Product Management Summit. We had a, about 150 people, a sold-out crowd coming to Seattle to learn how to build inclusive products and build an inclusive product management community. And a couple people would come up to me and say, hey, I listened to the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast and, you know, get a little ego there. And they're like, Red is so funny and Sumeya knows everything. <laughs> I'm like, hey, what am I, chopped liver? Uh, Jeff, we can't be here without you. So yes, fair. <laughs> They're just making those comments to me because ah, I see. Um, <laughs> well, nobody ever says anything nice about me, but they do say very nice things about Red and Sumeya and this podcast and all the people who are willing to give back to the community, like Avi. So, Avi, speaking of giving back to the community, I'm. We are here. We met you because you opened up your calendar to support aspiring product managers and other product managers. And Vinay, I want to give a shout out to him. He knew that you had a special interest in kind of this emotional side of product management. Can you talk a little bit about where that interest came from and any background on why Vinay thought of you for this topic? Yeah, definitely. So from... Well, I'll kind of give it from my perspective and then like I, hopefully what I think it came up uh, from Vinay. So in my perspective, like my background also, uh, I think one of the reasons I've leaned into focusing on like the emotional side of things is that, like I said, I'm not the, I'll call it like quote unquote classic technical background PM. Like I don't have a degree in anything technical. I don't have a well-known degree by any means. And I think early on in my career, like I tried to overcompensate for that, but then I kind of noticed that something that comes naturally to me and that I keep on getting feedback on is being a good listener, staying calm when, you know, shit hits the fan, pardon my French. So instead of trying to be something that I'm not, I actually decided to kind of embrace that aspect of my personality that just comes out more naturally and bring that to my work and actually start like being the voice of, you know, how would somebody feel when we build this? What are they going through? Just a broader context of, you know, what is it going to trigger within them? Uh, and that just started to resonate. So I think the reason Vinay also brought that up is a lot of times when I speak with, you know, product managers, aspiring product managers, that's often the angle I take to things. Like I like to approach things in a very human way because ultimately I think, you know, we're people working with people and we're building products for other people. And I'd actually given this talk a kind of a presentation titled Emotional Product Management or the Emotional Product Manager at other universities too. And I think that kind of came up as a topic. And I think Vinay actually saw like a combination of this could be a good fit. It sounded great. And I'm really happy that, that it worked out and that I'm here. All right. So I want to dive just a little bit deeper within your talk. We won't probably have time to have the whole thing because it's an interactive conversation. We're going to get Sumeya, get the audience involved. But can you share maybe a couple key takeaways from that talk? Yeah, definitely. 
So I think there's a couple things to think through. One of them is this framework, which I remember getting uh, at the time from Reforge, which really resonated. They kind of led me to believe that I think everything, and this is from the lens of you know, a customer using product, I think it could be brought into many other things, but I generally believe that everything starts and ends with a feeling or with an emotion. And the framework that I'm talking about is actually called ELMR. So it's basically, it's kind of like the decision hill that everybody goes through when they're trying to do something in a product. And you go from E is emotion, L is logic, M is motivation, and then R is the reward. And essentially what it's kind of emphasizing is that while it might feel like a lot of decisions that we make are rooted in some kind of logic and research, there's usually an emotion that triggers something. And then what we actually do is we justify and rationalize that emotion by placing logic or superimposing it on top of that. But like I said, ultimately emotion leads the way. And then after that, you know, there's like how hard the task may be. That's like what you could refer to as like the steepness of the motivation hill where the steeper, the harder it's going to be to get to the other side where you have your reward. And the less steep, the easier it's going to get to go through and then kind of go through that cycle again. But the same thing that's at the very end of that framework or the decision hill is a reward. And I think it's the same thing. A reward is usually something that triggers some kind of emotion or feeling of either accomplishment, pride, happiness, whatever it may be, which would actually kind of then carry that forward next time, either like consciously or subconsciously. So that's kind of one thing that's in there. And at the end, you know, there's like the classic overused, like Maya Angelou famous saying, right? People are going to forget what you said, but you did, but they're never going to forget like how something made them feel. And I think it's exactly the same with products. So that kind of, that's one takeaway. And I think the other piece is just kind of remembering the order of how important it is to think of kindness within kind of this emotional framework and the different stakeholders that you need to be kind to, where usually I think implicitly we think that we're trying to be customer centric and we want to be kind to our customers then our teammates and then ourselves. But what I kind of have noticed over the years is that I think that order should be flipped where it may seem counterintuitive, but you really want to be, first of all, kind to yourself as a PM. It's a really big task, takes a toll on you. It can be lonely. And you really need to think about practicing self-compassion emotional well-being and knowing that you're not going to be perfect. And I think like as a PM, you're the first like happiness bottleneck. Then you've got the people that you work with. And like I said, we're all people working with other human beings and we're very emotional beings by nature. And I think making sure to be very sensitive to how your team feels about what you're building, leading with kindness, just because, you know, it's the right thing to do. And I think otherwise you can just kind of If you don't do it, ultimately, you may find that your customers suffer as a result. And lastly, I think you want to make sure that you're kind to your customers because, like I said, we're all customers somewhere else and we all want to be treated the right way. We want to make sure the products make us feel great and capable and proud of what we do. And I think just because there's this arbitrary divide or like construct of an organization and a customer, it doesn't mean that we're not the same. Like, I think the more we remember that, then the higher our standards naturally become for what a really great experience is and should be. All right. So kindness and the ELMR framework, we've got a lot to sink our teeth into and there's more coming. Uh, But Sumeya, I want to turn to you and say, or ask, does the ELMR framework remind you of any other frameworks that that you've used regarding this? Or did his statement to be kind and uh, remember we're all human, does that spark any thoughts that you wanted to share with everybody? 
I like how this conversation started because it's outwardly focused. So you start by thinking outwardly about the reaction and the needs of whether it's the audience, the team, the the client, the customer, etc. And then building your actions around that. The ELMR1 framework sounds like a solid one for, for, you know, from that perspective the kindness and, you know, remembering we're all humans as well. I think uh, those are like basics that we're all taught in in elementary school or kindergarten. So uh, nothing wrong there. What I find interesting is, you know, when we're talking about this outward focus, there is also the other side of the coin. So for you to be effective at dealing, managing, interacting, inspiring with others, there is internal work that has to happen too, that, you know, will show up in the ways uh, that you are patient, that uh, patient, that you're open-minded in basically when you're thinking about the framework that Daniel Kahneman has around system one and system two thinking, you're using a little more of the system two thinking and also listing that in those around you. Because system one, yes, well, necessary and important, et cetera, that's not where the innovation necessarily happens or where the outsized outcomes you look for happen. So, you know, those are some of the things that I think as we continue the conversation, I'm curious for us to explore. Explore away. Avi, any reaction to what Samaya is saying? Yeah, I think she's absolutely correct. And I like what you said where... These are things we kind of learn in uh, kindergarten. There's that famous book, like uh, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. I I think it's true. And I think a lot of our adult life, we end up kind of relearning some uh, fundamental things, which are actually really important. And yeah, to your point, I think, you know, the way you um, outlined that it's kind of outward thinking, just as an example, right, is like, as you think about working with teammates and Enlisting those around you to also kind of adopt a similar way of thinking because it's, first of all, it's, it's a safer environment. And generally, you'll see people feeling more psychologically safe to share things, take risks, open up. And actually, that's where you start to get innovation and good ideas. So I don't think kindness is just like fuzzy so you feel good at work. It's a really strong and powerful enabler. Like we all want to be treated well. And when we're treated well, we usually pay it forward. And there's a really, really great quote from Brittany Brown, which is uh, clear is kind and unclear is unkind, right? And this doesn't just have to be all about fuzzy and I want to feel good and you want to feel good. So if you think about it from the, you know, the people that you're working with and also your customers, like whether you're writing a spec, whether you're communicating with a customer that you can't build something, whether you're getting feedback from a customer, I think it's really important to you actually, the way you can be extremely kind is by being very clear, whether it's in how you describe requirements, whether it's in being clear about what is going to make it down the pipeline or what is not, and also make it clear that you're doing your best to be kind along the way, right? You don't have to be cutthroat to do these things. You can find a balance. And I think when we're able to do these things, then it's kind of a built-in way to be inspired. Because I think in a world where we're all very busy with deadlines and OKRs and, and goals, et cetera, when something comes along and is just a little bit more in tune or just a little bit more of an emphasis on the fact that, hey, you're a person, maybe you had a 
a hard day and like the fact that nobody knows what anybody else is going through. I think that goes a really long way. And I actually think that has a really uh, profound impact on the business outcomes at the end. All right. So now I want to get kind of tactical or into the weeds because there's the old saying, hurt people, hurt people. And I feel like the product manager is constantly being beat up by their customers, by the engineers, by the different people who may not want to go where the product manager wants them to go. And so have you had any strat? It's nice in theory, be kind and it makes sense. But how do you find yourself being kind when how do you rein in your emotions or your anger, or I guess that is an emotion, but how do you rein in your emotions when, you know, you're being told that your product's not good enough. You're being told that your ideas aren't good enough. Like what do you do personally to keep that kindness front and center when you're not feeling like being kind to people who are not doing what you want? Yeah. Who wants that? Yeah. So that's a, I can answer it if any, nobody else wants to <laughs> go for it. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's extremely practical. And there are situations, like I said, where as a PM, you feel extremely lonely. And I think more more of the time, you're actually being told what's wrong than what's right. It's like very small specks of time where there's a celebration. And as a product manager, usually like you're extremely critical about everything, especially yourself. So I think that goes back to a couple of things. One is it goes back to how do you manage your emotional well-being? And I think there are a couple of tactics as you're doing these things. One is to remember that nothing is personal, right? You're representing a product, you're building something. And when I say nothing is personal, it's a bit of a contradiction to the whole like emotion piece. But when a piece of feedback comes in to remember that it's about the experience and the product that you're building, it is not about you. And it's really important to not take that home with you, even though it's extremely hard. And I think that's where it's important to build a support network, whether it's with PMs who work with you on your team whether it's, it's with other PMs who are in the industry or friends, it's really important to share, just like with anything. You've had a hard day. People have been coming with feedback. It's really great to share. People will actually give you perspective. They'll be able to change things from a lot of the times, like the subjective lens of that was really hard to hear to listen. They're just trying to make their day better in the job that they're doing. And it helps you detach yourself in that sense. And I think that's really important. I think another thing that is possible to do is as you're thinking through these things and as you're trying to build something and somebody's saying, listen, this is good, this isn't good, there are different frameworks that you can put in place. Like a lot of times internally, there's a lot of arguing around like this is a great thing to build for customers. I don't think it's going to be successful. There's a framework that we've kind of used in the past. Me and the team back in Atlassian when I was there kind of made this up because we were having a tough time agreeing on is this the right thing to build? So you can actually kind of plot out like whose problem are you actually solving? And you can kind of plot like the y-axis, you have like improving the business outcome. And then on the x-axis, you can have like how much is it reducing pain or increasing happiness? So if you think about this, then you've got kind of this balance between is it going to make the business happy or is it going to make your customers happy? And as opposed to being very subjective and just trying to either make the business look like there's results getting produced to just make your customers happy and you can starve one or the other, you can basically think about this as a two by two. So at the bottom left quadrant, you're not making anybody happy. So you really don't want to build any of that stuff. On the top right, it's a win, right? It's a win-win. You're making everybody happy. Ideally, most of the things you build aren't always going to be there because of all kinds of different constraints. So you're usually going to live on the bottom right quadrant or the top left. And the bottom right means you're mainly making your customers happy. 
which could be great, but it could also mean that it's not actually meeting business goals. So you really want to make sure to keep that honest and make it a win-win. Then you have the top left quadrant where is you're usually making the business happy, where the knee-jerk reaction could be is refrain from doing these. But it's not always true. That's where you might have projects like infrastructure or things that customers don't see or performing, uh, improving performance. And I think it's really important to be critical about that because those in time could become something that make customers very happy. It's just not as visible. Sameo, anything to add to that or to rebut? <laughs> yeah. No problem. I think there are a couple of uh, very tactical things in addition to what Avi shared that I that have worked for me. Number one is I listen or get feedback from people who work closely with me so that I can understand if there are unreasonable reactions that I'm having to things. I mean, we all have at least those of us who are healthy, have the spectrum of of emotional reactions to everything. And sometimes we don't catch on how we are perceived or how that, that some of our reactions are landing. And so having others around us that we trust and we can ask that question of is very important. The second one is almost like a mimicking or learning thing. So there are people that you work with, whether they're executives, or peers that do things in an amazing way. It looks some of it looks like magic. How they communicate, how they interact with certain personalities, how they, you know, deal with certain situations. And so learning, watching, and basically mimicking some of those skills, even though they're the softer skills help you use basically your system one thinking in an easy way, especially when you're dealing, you know, you're almost burnt out. You don't, you don't have much energy to deal with this last thing that's happening today. If you put yourself into the mode of this person that you admire, what would they do in this situation? It might give you a little bit of that boost and take you out of the situation. So you are thinking about it as if you're a third person. So those are just a couple of the tactics. Thank you. And then Red, got to put you on the spot. You're in sales. That's got to be, sometimes you just don't want to be nice to people, (laughs) but you are one of the kinder people that we know. So how do you separate or rein in your emotions uh, to continue to be kind when you're getting no's and negativity or disappointment, whatever negative feelings, how do you put them aside and uh, be kind in your day to day? Well, I appreciate you uh, putting sales in a fantastic light here, Jeff. Wait, wait to start it. But, <laughs> it sounds um, miserable, man. How many people yeah. have to tell you no before you get that? That yes, it's like the the percentages just by even if you're great at it, right? You just have to be comfortable striking out. I don't know. Anyway, but it sounds like you're describing a product manager. Yeah, right now. also true. That, that that's what it sounds like, and that's why I think product product and sales get along so well is because historically it's a funnel, right? There are so many people this. Uh, vocal minority that wants us to make all these changes and the silent majority we wish we could hear from that could guide our business direction or buy products. And it's a thankless job, I believe, I truly believe, where you're, you know, people say you do it for the money. I think the best salespeople do it because that quote Avi pointed out earlier, because they care more about how they make people feel than they do about the products and features that wowed them in that instant moment that they're going to forget after an hour and a half. So the way I get through it, and I think the way I think most salespeople do get through it, is when they start to experience those one or two people 
out of the hundred that make it worth it, right? You know, the the qualitative element of our job and and you know dropping the fact that we're cogs in a machine. No, we get to talk to customers, potential customers. We get to change lives. For every ninety nine people that don't want our help, there's that one person that will make their career that will earn them that bonus. And I think if if you just remember those stories and remind yourself that those few individuals, that's the fuel that makes you go for the hunt. It's kind of like those old people, eh, I shouldn't say old, but they are usually on the beach with the little metal detector and the zinc on the nose. You know what I'm talking about, Jeff, right? I've seen the, it. The guys I've are seen it. Yeah, <laughs> that guy. <get> too. <laughs> exactly. So I think that they're going to be in the sun all day and they're not going to find anything significant. But when they finally do get that one item, it made the entire day worth it. So sales is a yellow brick road. Just enjoy the journey and you'll get to Oz eventually. But you make some really nice friends along the way. Wow, am I totally off topic. Back to you, Jeff. Actually, I thought that was spot on. And I I see that tangible takeaway (laughs) of like, keep in mind the success that ties all three, right? To keep in mind that success and what it feels like and, and the power of that. and know that you're more likely to get there with kindness and with empathy and and so on. Hopefully I paraphrased correctly. But Red, speaking of emotions, I know what emotion you're about to feel when I ask you, are you red, E, to do the audience questions? Yeah, that emotion is not, not love, <laughs> I'll tell you right now. <laughs> not, not laughter and happiness. It's been a while. I've missed it. You know, ready, ready, red. When you're not here, and Jeff makes that comment, I, I order that joke. It just doesn't. Work. It doesn't land yeah. nearly as well without you here, Red. I, I, I would imagine it doesn't make any sense actually to anyone listening when I'm not here. So here's a moment we did reference about 20 minutes ago, which was the idea that today's show is not just learning uh, and hearing our questions, but it's about your questions as well. So if you're somebody out there who's listening in and you're here live with us today, which there are quite a few of you, raise your hand. There's a little button on LinkedIn, which which is how we record this live show. Raise your hand. We'll invite you on stage and you can ask a question. You can also ping me directly right here on LinkedIn if you'd like a little privacy. And same thing with Jeff. So Jeff, if you have any questions come through, you let me know. Samaya, if you let me know. Avi, if you have anyone bugging you with questions, we love questions. This is your time to shine. So I'm going to give everyone a minute to ponder, but I will say this, whoever is first on stage always gets the most excitement and attention. So if you're sitting at work right now and you're thinking, man, I could really use a boost of attention. I want the whole world to appreciate me right now while I'm eating lunch. Then this is your moment. That's right, Sarisha, this is it. I don't care who your boss is, your CEO, you must know we are going to give you more love than they give you on a daily basis. And if they give you this much love, then holy moly, where do you work? Tell the world. So with that in mind, what is your question? Red, real quick, since you're talking about bosses and CEOs, I just want to make sure that everybody remembers that this is recorded and distributed as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. And I don't know, Red, you're going to, I love the love that you're given. And Sarisha, it's good to see you. What's your question or comment? Yeah, thank you. So I'm a product manager right now, and I I am also <laughs> trying to put some techniques around the emotions. So my uh, problem or, you know, the frustration comes when my customer is saying something, but my internal team or, you know, our boss <laughs> or, or you know, our internal stakeholders are saying something. So how do we balance between the external and internal stakeholders and how do we align and how do we rein our emotions and frustrations? 
So we have to brighten your day right now. That's our goal. Sumea, you jumped in first, so no pressure, but let's lift <laughs> up Sarisha. Oh, this is a this is a typical. Well, every PM has gone through this at least once every year, and the reason I say this is because there are these comments you hear, such as the customer doesn't know what they really want, or you need to think beyond the immediate pain of the customer and jump, and that's what we're thinking about. And there are all these different refrains that are actually rational and valid. And so in a situation like this, I would want to dig deeper. First of all, I want to dig deeper from the customer side. And then I want to dig deeper from the, let's say, the executives or the, the, the other internal people side. So if a customer is, for example, asking for a feature, specifically finding out why and what is driving that need and what pain points they're looking to solve for is one place where I would go to. Those are at least the starting questions I would have answers to from that customer. And then internally from the, the, the internal or from the internal people perspective, I would ask those same questions. More often than not, I have found that there is a common ground. It's just a, a difference in the execution or the time horizon. So internally, it could be that people are talking about something you ultimately get to in the next, I don't know, three months, six months, one year. And what the customer is looking for is just something a little more immediate or something that if done, it would get them just halfway through what your executives are thinking about or vice versa. So I would want to start there. And if that's not the case, you're finding that at the core, there is a complete disagreement between the why and the pain point and what we're solving for, then what you want to understand is, is this disagreement based on prioritization, is based on other customers who are more important. It just basically, our role as PMs is to ask enough questions that it allows us and everyone in the room to arrive at the same conclusion almost. You're not looking for everyone to agree on the conclusion, but you're looking for everyone to understand why you arrived at that conclusion and to align around it, even if they you know, agree to disagree ultimately. Avi, what thoughts do you have? Yeah, I think to build on what you're saying, there's, there's a couple things that come to mind. One really is the question always like with these things is, is there a misunderstanding or is there a misalignment? Right? It's, it's a nuance, but it's really important to understand. If there's a misalignment, then you have different things you can use internally, right? Like some companies will use like a DACI or a RACI or whatever format to make a decision. And that way you kind of objectify it. If there's a misunderstanding, I think to Sumeya's point, that's where you want to dig deeper and try to understand, okay, what are we missing? Like, what are we, um, where's the gap? Where, where aren't we agreeing? And I think that there is one way which is a little fuzzier to kind of think about framing it and the other one is maybe a little bit more of like a a framework which i've found kind of useful in the past in like objectifying what's going on here as opposed to your opinion versus my opinion and then hierarchy comes into play and that's where people get really really frustrated i think the first thing to notice is when you're talking to customers you your manager or internal people it's really important to show people when somebody starts uh, their feedback or when you're talking to them and they start their sentence with something like, I feel so-and-so. And it doesn't really matter if that I feel is, I feel if you build this, it would be the best thing since sliced bread, or I feel, and they're extremely frustrated. As long as there is a strong signal of emotion there, that means that they care about the outcome. 
whether they're frustrated or happy. It means that they're invested. And I think it's important to point that out to your team because once they see that people care, then they care as well. It feels like the work that they're doing is important. If people just give you feedback and it's indifferent, that's the worst place you can be in. And I think you have a different problem altogether to solve is how do you create fans for the product? But assuming that people are passionate, whether in a good way or a bad way, like they really want the product to improve because it's important to them, then I think a really good framework to actually, you can proactively bring it up and you can show it internally to people. We've done this in the past. When I was working, for example, on the editor at Confluence, it was exactly this kind of situation. Way too many cooks in the kitchen. And you make it not about being right. You make it about being effective. And that's also really important because a lot of times we want to be right. It's just human nature, and it, but it's not really helpful. The framework is basically thinking about it's like from a jobs to be done perspective, uh, you basically take what's called like a Likert scale. So as you're talking to customers and you collect feedback, you can just ask them for each thing, whether it's a feature or a new product idea. You can ask them for each one of these things, like on a scale of one to five, how important is this for you? And then on a scale of one to five, how satisfied are you with what you have today in this regard? And without going into the details, like I can share offline or somewhere where you can look up job to be done uh, opportunity score. You can actually calculate an objective opportunity score for each one of the areas based on the gap of either how important or how satisfied somebody is. And that also helps you map out is whatever you're going to build or building currently, you know, underserving, serving just right or overserved for your customers. And then that's a conversation you and your internal stakeholders or manager can have together as you look at the customer, as opposed to feeling like you're opposing forces trying to be right about something. Sarisha, how do you feel about that? I got a thumbs up, but yep. uh, and, okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's really helpful. Yep. I'll, I'll definitely try to objectify uh, rather than, um, I, I like the how you put it, you know, it's not about being right, but being effective. Thank you so much. Rock on. So it's, it's funny, <laughs> I, not to correct your word choice, but usually objectify is something you probably not want to do with the person you're collaborating with, but to be objective yes. with. <laughs> uh, just a quick Google search on the word. Thank you, ChatGBT. So with that in mind, I love the fact that Unicorns and Rainbows comes from conversations where you are being curious, which is why we got in the job in the first place. And to all those managers who might be listening in now, if you are managing a team of curious individuals who are hired to be curious, please, it's your job to let them feel comfortable being inquisitive. Let them be comfortable asking questions because otherwise you have pushed them away from what their job is into a role of just project managing your ideas. And that's not why you hired them unless their title is a project manager, in which case then still you want to help them grow. So no matter what, Curiosity, my friends, that's the goal. Now, with that in mind, uh, I'd like to shift gears here. So, Sarisha, thank you so much. And uh, feel free to raise your hand if anything else is inspired along the way. We have another question that has been fired off from the LinkedIn world. But again, for keeping it anonymous, I'm going to retitle this person's name as Superwoman. So, Superwoman uh, says the following question. It's 1 a.m. in India. So, sorry, they can't jump in and talk as of uh, they don't want to wake up their children sleeping. So first of all, way to serve the customer. That's a great product manager right there. Now, the question. It might be a little off topic, but we're going to jump in. The question is, they're looking to hire a remote product or looking for a remote product manager role. Sorry. And how exactly do you reach out to others in order to 
get past the boring old school method, right? You're trying to show them you're this empathetic individual that you know to work in this environment. You're trying to show them you're human and you have emotions. And unfortunately, a lot of these remote roles, it's like go through HR, standardized questions. So how do you insert that into your outreach to get that kind of attention, to get to attract a hiring role? And um, again, it might slightly feel off topic, but I think it's still very relevant because our entire mission here is to make it more uh, inclusive for people to become product managers. Samaya and, and Avi, there's also just quick context. They recently transitioned to a TPM role from an engineering role, two years of experience, but the culture was toxic in the company. So they resigned and they're trying to go to the next one, the new company and, and show them what they really are and, and hopefully get past the uh, adage of you're a cog in a machine. So hopefully you can answer the question. And by the way, red is great. Just want to throw that in the end that they said that, not me. So Sumeya, I want to throw to Avi on this one because you went first last time. Avi, how do you feel about this question? Do you need to clarify it all or do you feel like uh, you can jump on in and advise? Yeah, so just to quickly clarify, this is somebody who's looking to in part of the hiring process or they've already gotten to the place that they want to? No, they're looking more so earlier stage. They're trying to find the job that allows them to be this version of emotion. And all these hiring processes are so cold right now. It doesn't doesn't feel like it's very easy to to get you know to get yourself into the in the hiring queue, so to speak, based on your emotional traits yeah. and your ability to be this. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thanks for clarifying. Uh, I can one hundred percent relate as somebody similar in that in that sense. Some things I've done in the past, and I, I keep on doing because even within work, I haven't been to an office since. COVID started, and I don't see myself being in an office anytime soon, uh, even day to day, right? It's like you have new colleagues or a new manager, and you want to make sure to make sure that people kind of understand what makes you tick, who you are, what makes you stand out. It's, it's very different. It's even more difficult, as you pointed out, within the hiring process where nobody even has any context. You have no, there's no prior work to look at, et cetera. Things that I've done to try and create a better match so that I feel more comfortable being myself. Please is, even though it's, please say you put on a chicken suit or like some kind of costume, maybe no, pretended to be a delivery boy. Uh, no, 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 fake, fake, fake mustache. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, for me, it's been like as I look at different companies, one of the things that matters to me the most that I've noticed over time is I'm a huge culture fan, I think that's what makes or breaks my experience at companies. When I feel that the culture is solid, then I usually do well. And usually being myself is more than enough. And I don't have to try and, uh, too hard to like fit in or show up as somebody who I'm not. So as I'm looking at different people like hiring managers, I'm seeing what kind of companies they worked for, looking at the core values of the company on the website, just kind of also understanding like where they're located. Are they kind of an afterthought in kind of the navigation? Are they front and center? Are they clear? Are there 11 of them? Or are there three concise values, which kind of just understanding how the company prioritizes these aspects, which by nature are a lot less kind of easy to define. And they're like a little bit more in the fuzzy area, but you see that they put them like at a very high importance. So it's kind of been like a filtering mechanism as I try to go through companies. And then more tactically, every time in my career, whether it's through an interview or in difficult situations, the more I've just tried to respond to something the way I would respond to something. Obviously, you try and mimic and learn from people who inspire you, as Samaya said, but 
you really try to be who you are. Usually good things happen. So I will try to add a little bit more playfulness or facts about me, like in my CV is a small example. And the idea is if that resonates, then kind of like attracts like. And trying to make sure that whatever people are attracted to isn't some kind of version that I'm trying to be that isn't really representative of how I behave and what I bring to the table. And then there's going to be a mismatch because they're attracted to something else is making sure that, you know, if it seems relevant and once you go into the conversation is keeping that authenticity in the small parts all the way up through the interview process, the emails, like I will add in emojis and I'll try and be funny about something and I'll try and keep things lighthearted. So th those have been some things that have helped me. I can't say it's always easy because, you know, there's only so much you can know from afar. Fantastic. That's a, uh, that's fantastic. Mitsuyan, my friend. Beautiful. Sumeya, I don't know if we want to create a little bit of, you know, controversy here, but this is one topic I don't think I want to create controversy around. Just yeah. Because and I think, I, sorry, I think Avi was pretty comprehensive, so I have nothing to add. Then we, then here you got it, folks. There Can we, we have it. Take this moment oh, and like pause, hit pause and like write down the exact timestamp of when Sumeya was at a loss for words. No? Red? Give me something. Oh, she, she can't. There's not even words to <laughs> I'm laughing so hard. It has happened twice. Believe me, I've been keeping okay. track. So this is <laughs> It's not the first. It's only the first that I was ready to write down or that I, I didn't write down the last one and let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Red, I do have a question that I know you, you like controversial opinions, but you don't want one here. You don't want to see their emotions. But I, I do want to know, like, is there a thought that Avi that you have or Sumeya that you have as it relates to emotions and product management that you want to see whether there's uh, the other would refute it or whether it agrees? So some thought that you're you're not as confident in, but you want to put out there and just get get some reactions to. I can jump in just for the sake of discussion. I'll throw it out there just to, to create a provocative uh, question. I think ultimately that for product managers and for like great experiences, talking about things like uh, some of the best products out there, I think that if you have to choose, that intuition is more important than being data-driven as a product manager. Spicy, hot take. Wow. Let's get it. Samaya, reaction. Well, I don't know if it's that controversial. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think this is one that, you know, people have one bias towards, you know, either data or intuition, or but the more experienced people have both. And then depending on the situation, they might want to use one or the other, you know, especially when you're talking brand new products and things that haven't been done before. And, you know, and also when we talk about the question of data, it's, it's a little more nuanced than that. Feedback from people, talking to customers, like all of those are data points. Yeah, they might not be quantitative, I mean, I agree. I agree. Sometimes intuition is the right way to go. <laughs> I'm going to push back here. Yeah, preach. So here you go. So here's the problem with intuition. Intuition is not a shared language necessarily. Intuition is going to be more accurate and refined. Those who have the most experience and in internal data points to pull into their intuition. If you read the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, the intuition is built from years of practice and years of data. And so... That leads into a hierarchical structure if we as an organization 
allow people to lean into intuition because then we're going to point to, well, this person's been here longer, so we have to trust their intuition. Whereas data is a common language and it's a way to check, all get on the same page and to check somebody's worst instincts. I think this is this is where the question of nuance is. Well, come on. on. I mean, yes, of course. Sometimes it depends. <laughs> well, I you know, we can't be absolute about this. I can think of exceptions on both sides. If we're looking for a general rule, you know, you have equal amount of data and intuition in the room, which one would you go to? And you can't make up your mind and it's equally risky both sides of the equation, you know, either one would work. I think, though, pushing back and making somebody provide the experience, it doesn't have to be like data as in quantitative data, but pointing to the anecdotes and, and questioning their logic is, is critical to making the right decision. Avi, uh, what do you say, man, based off of what I, my pushback? No, I think that's interesting. I think there's a lot to unpack, right? And I agree with like stepping out of the discussion, yes, everything is nuanced and everything can have a, it depends before it. But just for the sake of the discussion, I'll take like the one side. I think intuition to your point is something that's built over time. Intuition, I think, is also misinterpreted a lot of times as like just a random feeling out of thin air. I don't think it's that. I think a lot of times it's taking a lot of pieces that you know and kind of making an educated, I call it guess, decision, bet, whatever it may be. I think there's another thing is like in a world where Obviously, like we're flooded with data, data is considered king uh, in many forms. As you said, it's like a common way of looking at things. It's a standardized way of kind of measuring stuff. Data are also flawed. Knowledge is flawed. Most times what we think we know at like a macro and micro level actually is wrong. So what we usually do, it's not about, I think where intuition comes into play is it helps you decide what to move forward with for the sake of learning. And yes, you want to make sure that you balance things with whatever data you have. But I think the problem with this approach of, I think you can have intuition with very strong principles, a strong point of view on what you think a right outcome or experience looks like. And that can be done with the absence of data. That can be done based on things like common sense, patterns you've seen before. And I think that's actually extremely powerful and data actually serves to kind of validate a lot of those things. But I think the problem with data is that we usually treat it as like absolute evidence when it's not. I was listening to this book recently by Peter Etienne. He used this saying of like, what did he say? Lack of evidence isn't evidence of lack. Meaning a lot of times we have data, we think we have the full story, but we, we really don't. And there's kind of like an evidence bias. And I think... As human beings, ultimately, like going back to the fact that I do think that everything we do stems from an emotion as a product manager and then as a customer using a product, I think the more we can make decisions at the same level, then I think that's where products start to resonate at a higher level too. As opposed to when you start to make decisions extremely, like very much leaning towards using data and being very kind of objective about it uh, and distancing yourself from the human aspect of it. I think that's where gaps are created and that's where product managers lose sight of what their customers want and need. Uh, and a lot of times that's where people will build products and they'll measure it in a certain way and they'll look at the outcomes in form of data because that's how they made the decision. They'll deem it as successful, but customers will not even resonate with it. So, sorry, Red, I just want to plus one on most of what Avi said and I just, most, most, most. most. I, uh -oh. I, I still think, I 100% agree that sometimes people 
dive deep into data that they haven't given enough thought as to whether it actually supports one conclusion or another. And we don't want to be completely, we don't want to let data run us, you know, you got to have some intuition. But I still think that when it comes down to it, you have to be able to defend your intuition in meetings with, I think you want to be challenged on your intuition. You want to have a, a culture where the intuition, you have to share the anecdotes and discuss those anecdotes and, and share the basis of the intuition. So I agree. We don't want to just let data, we want data backed decisions and we want to surface the justification for our thoughts. Not, and yes. So plus one on 99% of what Avi said, but I do have to push back and still think that we have to be able to force somebody to explain their intuition or the basis of it, because it might be, we overweight like that one traumatic experience. We assume that that traumatic experience will happen all the time. And I think that that deserves to be challenged. But Red, speaking of challenged, I deserve to be challenged in the fact that, well, I don't know it. I don't know where I'm going with that, but you have a challenge. We have three minutes, two guests, make it happen, Red. Well, yeah, and I, I have to make sure we end cap the last conversation. When they're referring to intuition, just make sure it's not gas. So just want to make sure you won't know, like when you're in a meeting, it's not indigestion or gas. It's like, the, yeah. <laughs> well, the, I'm, I'm just very quickly going to add in a lot of uh, interviews, for example, or companies, it comes up as product sense. So just for those who use that language. Product sense. So now you have homework, everybody. You're going to Google product sense, chat GPT, product sense. And then I'm going to throw in a little uh, salt to that pepper, survivorship bias. One of the best stories of uh, where data can work against you. Google it, survivorship bias. Now, if you don't know anything else about this conversation, it's about these last two questions. We're going to go in order of who is on stage. Samantha, you have one minute to ask your question, and then we're going to do rapid fire responses, and then we're going to go to the next one. Samantha, are you ready to rock and roll? Let's do this. Hey, yeah, I actually didn't have a question. And then Jeffrey said what I was going to say about Abby's point that, you know, you can defend the intuition with data, right? And vice versa, right? You can have the data and then try to defend it with, you know, intuition or, you know, just social, you know, your social understanding of how things normally go or how people function in terms of a, of a pattern towards a certain thing. So th that's what I was going to say. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. That that further backs up confidence, especially in some earlier individuals who messaged me in being themselves. Like Avi said, be your authentic self. Sometimes you're going to have to tell someone who hired you, please trust me. You're going to need to trust me because I don't have the capacity to back it up, but I know that's why you hired me for these difficult decisions. And you know what happens when you're wrong? You're probably going to get fired. But hey, <laughs> who's afraid? Red, of okay, you had, gonna, Samantha gonna, gave you a softball. She gave, she was under a minute, self-contained, keeping us on schedule, and you're talking about getting fired. Come on. <laughs> okay. Okay. Back on track. Back on track. Uh, next up, hopefully I'm saying your name correctly. Boza, you have the floor, and I love the flower emoji. What's your statement? What's your question? Unmute yourself. Enjoy. Okay. Hi. Hi, I'm Favor. So just a quick one. I nearly transitioned into product management. And so for me, I just want to, like, any clarification on this emotional, you know, way of, you know, implying and putting it in products, does it work for measuring success and risk? Like, can you also put it in play? And if yes, like, in what kind of, like, scenarios and examples? Good question. Avi, we'll drop to you first for rapid fire. This is where the mute button on LinkedIn. You probably know people at LinkedIn, Avi, who can help you with the LinkedIn. Me? Nah, just a few. The mute button's a really difficult one. I don't know if I know anybody. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I think that's a really good question. I'll give you an example and I'm happy to share some of the slides later. So there were examples around like how you can apply kindness and measure emotion. So really quickly, one question you can ask yourself and your team is, are you doing things right or are we doing the right thing? A lot of times teams end up running after process and not actually thinking about put the process aside, like what's the right thing to do by the customer? That's one. Second, establish strong user-first principles in your definition phase. One that we used, for example, and we were building out a new editor in Confluence, you try to create something that resonates emotionally. We used one that was called No Invisible Walls because they really suck to bump into and they make you feel like a complete moron because you didn't see them and it's extremely embarrassing, meaning people don't want to look bad at their jobs. Another one is you want to build a framework that prioritizes kindness and emotions. That goes back to the framework I was kind of sharing earlier. There's other things as well. You can even change like a job story from something like when I when something I want to do something so that I can get an expected outcome to when I'm in a situation, it makes me feel in a certain way and then talk about what the motivation is so you can get to an expected outcome. So you can actually add feelings and that'll actually force you to get to know your customers better. Three more things. Think about like contextually triggered surveys, right? That means you're attaching things to an action somebody's doing at the moment the emotion comes up. So when you're getting their response, you're not just measuring something like NPS 60 days after they've used the product, you're getting them in the heat of the action itself. Then you can measure things like user-driven input. Think about LinkedIn where you say like, I'm disinterested in this. That's an emotion. And last thing is talk to your customers. And like I said earlier, most of your conversations are going to start with, I feel dot, dot, dot. And that's something you can put a huge spotlight on for your team. All right. Hopefully that answered your question. I would normally like to understand and hear more from you as our guests here up on stage, but we have to get to concluding thoughts. We are out of time. Thank you so much for everybody who asked questions. Avi, you've had an hour with people. You have a, about 30 seconds to a minute more. What do you want them to take away from, from all that we've talked about or what last thing do you want to get in here? Last thing I want to get in here, I want people to just feel a little bit more brave to bring up things that they would kind of bring up less of a professional environment. I feel a lot of times we have we feel that we have to show up in a professional context in a bit more of kind of a buttoned up fashion. I think that comes across whether it's in our work environment or even on LinkedIn and something that I've been doing for years and it's a little it's <laughs> it's even somewhat uh, therapeutic. It's like most of the things I post on LinkedIn somehow they're create they're related to work but they always come from an extremely emotional and personal place if anybody's ever seen one of my posts like it'll often involve my children or something pretty emotional even like quote unquote too personal to share on linkedin i do that on purpose because i think it's part of who i am and part of me you know like you said maybe 100 people see it 99 say like this doesn't belong on linkedin but one person sees it and says, that's really cool that you can be professional and like bring your personal side because it's just, it's who you are. You can't really separate it. And then they're inspired to do the same. So I would urge people, and that's why I use the intuition, like provocative prompt is I think a lot of people feel that, you know, you have to be data driven, you have to kind of follow the playbook and that's great. And I think data is awesome and you can't really make decisions without it, but I would love to see people embracing, trusting themselves and thinking of their customers just as who they are and just building things that make people happy as opposed to just trying to move a metric. All right. Thank you so much, Avi. Appreciate the insights you you offered today and answering questions of our audience here. And uh, my concluding thoughts are 
We at the Product Management Center are trying to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And one thing we do is the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, where we empower professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product manager role. So if you are not yet a product manager and you are trying to become one, Google search, Bing search, ChatGPT search, whatever it is, search for the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. Our applications open June 8th. And so think about applying. And if you are a product manager, we need mentors and volunteers to connect and empower the professionals to land their first PM role. So we hope that uh, you'll check out the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator and volunteer. Avi, thank you so much. Appreciate you. And thank you, audience, uh, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of How to Succeed in Product Management.